The preaching of God's Word is found in Philippians chapter 2, and there verses 1 through 5. We started a brief series last week, out of order as far as the text goes, but considering the foundation, which we considered the perfection of love, verses 5 to 8, as we looked at the love of Christ to us. We go back now to take up verses 1 to 5, 5 being something of a hinge that connects these two ideas together. And so we return to our theme of love, looking at these first five verses, by which we consider the practice of our own love, all of which has to be in the context of remembering what we've already considered of Christ's love to us. Similar in God's providence, Matthew 20, that we are to be ministers one to another, even as Christ did take upon Himself the place of a servant to serve us. So here, the first five verses, Philippians 2, 1 to 5. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You remember that from verses 5 to 8, there is the remembrance of Christ's great love to us, as it specifies He being in the form of God, as we considered this is that He is God, He yet made Himself of no reputation, verse 7, took upon Himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and further suffered upon the cross for us. We'll consider as well, the Lord willing, next week, the next few verses 9, 10, and 11, but for now we look at these first five wherein we find an exhortation. Here, in these first five verses, Paul is exhorting the church of Philippi and thus Christians as well beyond how it is we are to love one another. You see the basic exhortation in verse 2 when Paul says that we are to be like-minded, having the same love being of one accord, of one mind. These unifying features which he's expressing and he expresses elsewhere, as you can remember, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, a great theme of unity and how it exhorts us to love one another as well, many other places beside. Verse 3 states the exhortation in the negative. If this is positively, verse 2, what we are to do, verse 3 gives us this is what we shouldn't do. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Brethren, just for a moment, imagine this. If just verse 3 were made real in this world, how much would change instantaneously? If nothing were done through strife or vainglory. And yet, we have to consider it more closely. What if that were true of you and me? What if you and I set aside all vainglory, all pride, all contention, all arrogance, how much would change? But it goes further. 
It reverts back to the positive. Don't do this. Here's what should be done. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And it continues this exhortation. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also in the things of others. Connecting it then in verse 5 to this mind which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, the exhortation of verses 1 through 4 is most perfectly realized in the person and work of Christ. And so all of what Paul is exhorting us to do is precisely what we find in Christ Jesus, which is why we considered that last week, because this provides the great clarity and the foundation of what this love to one another looks like. It gives us the model, the example to follow. Certainly, Christ is far more than just a model and example, but what He did models and exemplifies for us this exhortation. Now, surely none of this is new to us. The Bible is full of this message of loving others and denying self, and passages will come to your mind quite quickly. What is it then that so often challenges our loving one another in the way that the Bible says. If you and I are to think diligently and to identify what is the thing which makes this so necessarily repeated in the Bible, why is it that in the Lord's providence it must come to us again and again and again, even as believers, regenerate, born-again believers, why is it that we so often must be brought back to this message, love one another, Christ saying it, both in His humiliation and exaltation, both in His personal earthly ministry and in His his ministry through the apostles. Why is it? What's the cause? And simply put, the reason that you and I can identify that we need this message again and again, we can say it this way. Here's the reason. I am the reason. Every one of you have to say that. I'm the reason. What do we mean by that? It's because I often make myself bigger than others. I drift into the realm of thinking myself greater than others. I think myself more you know, doctrinally strong than others and mature and better and more worthy than others. I'm the reason. This is the cause for such a need of this regular exhortation that we often drift into the inflation of self. So that we become the reason. See, this is different than we think. We think the reason is because others are difficult to love. We think the reason is because others really make it hard for us. This brother or this sister or this group of people or that type of people, they're the reason that we need this message. But if you look at the message that's here, the actual focus is not, oh, the difficulties of others. It's rather the trouble is in our own identity. It's in our own propensity of serving ourselves and being self-conceited and self-concerned. Brethren, we don't need to spend much time on this in our own culture where it seems everything is about the individual. And so somebody tells a story about something that took place in their life And instantly we feel like I've got to match that story with something that's come from my life. 
And instantly we're all about this contention about look at me and look at what I'm doing and so on. And oh, that was funny. But it was funnier when my children were that age. And it was bigger when I was doing this. And silly, trite things like that. Brethren, how much more when it is in more weighty things we wait on others to serve us because we consider ourselves as worthier than they. What's the point? There is an inbuilt consequence of the fall, delight in self. So you think for a moment, knowledge puffs up. This is the notion that's before us. There is a willingness to be puffed up about ourselves. But what does love do? Charity edifies. Well, charity means if it's building up, it's building others up above us. It doesn't match tit for tat. You've done this, well, I've done something just like that. You've done this, I've done something better than you. And whether that comes out in word, often in our brains and in our hearts, making ourselves elevated above others and pushing them down, love instead says, I become your servant. The problem that requires such regular exhortation is the great principle and idol of self. This is the biggest challenge to loving others. We ourselves are the biggest challenge. This is why Paul has labored, as we saw, to show forth Christ who is essentially and in all of His works superior to us and yet willingly humbled Himself to serve us. That captures and arrests our attention and it puts in context all of what Paul's saying before us. So brethren, as we think of the practice of love, consider three things. The motive for our love, the focus of our love, and the exercise of our love. The motive, the focus, and the exercise of our love. So first, the motive. Paul begins with motives regularly. So you think of the order even of the book of Romans before he launches into the more uh, hortatory or the portion of the book which is more filled with exhortations, he's actually laying out the mercies of God. And so you have this great transition whereby in uh, Romans chapter 12, he says, by the mercies of God, he then exhorts us to present our lives, uh, our bodies as living sacrifices. And this is the regular scriptural order. So children, you should know this that the Ten Commandments don't actually start with the Ten Commandments. They start with the preface to the Ten Commandments. And the preface reminds us of the Lord's grace. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then goes into the exhortation. There's grace, motive, mercy, that leads then to exhortation and obedience. And this is the biblical Method. Well, notice the text before us. Paul has actually already labored to some extent in the first chapter, but now he brings it up in verse 1. He's setting forth the grace of God. And there are two things which he particularly identifies that we can see in verse 1. The first thing we notice is God's grace to us. This is a motive. And you can see it, for instance, when you look at the verse, verse 1, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ. The word consolation comes from a word of called alongside. 
think of that for a moment, has a relationship to advocate, one who is called alongside. Is there any way in which Christ comes alongside us? We have to say tremendously much in every way. He is our advocate. There is consolation, and it's not just the act of coming alongside, but it's the effect of His coming alongside. Now, Christian, think of this for a moment. What consolation is yours when you have the consciousness of Christ being your advocate? And you say, this is tremendous. This is overwhelmingly helpful. When I know that Christ is mine, He's my advocate with the Father. Christ has come alongside us. He is our advocate, which means He is the one who pleads our case, who supports and upholds us and comforts us. What, what's, what's Paul saying? Same look at the grace of God to you. Christ has come alongside you. And instead of us saying, well, yeah, that's right, because I'm worthy, which would instantly discredit our profession, we say, what an astounding grace. But there's more. Paul goes further. If there's any comfort of love, again, an extension of His grace. The word comfort comes from a combination of near and speech. It's the blessing of having one near to speak to us in encouraging ways. And is this not what God has done? Any comfort of love. He comes near to us in Christ. And with that, He comforts us, speaking near unto us. He's not from a distance shouting that we have to strain our ears and cancel out everything else to wonder what is it that He's saying. He comes near to us. You think for a moment, there are scenes in the Scriptures when there's great things going on, and yet it's, as passage comes to mind, it's in the still small voice that God speaks to His people. And parents know something of this. They certainly know what it is to be angry and perhaps to raise their voice, but they also know what it is when they're soothing their child to draw near to their child to come down to their level, even to take knees before them or to lift the child up upon their lap and say, son or daughter, look at me. And the voice isn't loud. It's soothing and whispering and saying, I love you. You're mine. I would never leave you. Some parents have testified of times where their child panicked about something that they misunderstood and they thought that their parents had left and their parents come and say, oh, you know, mom and dad love you. We'd never leave you. And they don't do it shouting at them. They come near and often their voice is right next to their ear because they're embracing the child. And think of how the Lord has made us in that way. That when it is we're most intimate with one and we're embracing them, that our mouth is near their ear. So to shout would actually be out of place. But we speak quietly, soothingly, comfortably to them. This is the notion of what's going on here. He's being near to us to speak generously, lovingly to us. And this is what God has done for us and does for us still. How many times have we lost, as it were, perspective? And in the midst of reading God's Word or having it read to us, it's as if we sense God speaking in our ear, speaking peace to us 
through the blood of Christ, the promises. We come perhaps unprepared. We open up the psalm book and all of a sudden a world of love issues unto us because of the word of Christ which dwells in us by His sung praise. And we delight in the comfort of His love. This is a rich testimony. There's more. If any fellowship of the Spirit, His presence, His grace, His gifts, the very Spirit of God dwelling with us. And finally, if any bowels and mercies, both of these words speak of the inward feelings of kindness and compassion, not just the Word, but the effect within us and the fact of God's love toward us. The Christian must say that God has been generous to him. The Christian must acknowledge that God, the God of heaven and earth, has loved us and graciously so. And so when Paul says if, he's not putting it forward as if he's saying, I'm not sure is there if, but he's saying think about this for a moment. The consolation of Christ, the comfort of love, the fellowship of the Spirit, the bowels and mercies, those tender, sincere expressions of God, that there are these things. Well, notice further, a second motive is what we considered last week, but ought to be asserted. The motive for the love that we'll consider the practice of is because of Christ's love for us as expressed in verses 5-11. to All of which we nearly, nearly need to summarize. Christ, out of love, humbled Himself to serve us in the greatest way ever. He didn't come down, which would have been in and of itself a great mercy. He came down humbling Himself to serve us in immeasurable ways. How can we say it's immeasurable? Well, many ways. One way is this. The consequence of His loving service will last for eternity. Never end. Brethren, remember this. Christ willingly humbled Himself for you, suffering the agony and the curse of the cross because of His sincere and most gracious love for you. And you did not deserve any of it. You did not qualify for it. You did not stand out as one more worthy of another to receive it. He graciously and sincerely set His love upon you. This love demanded, as we saw last week, extreme self-denial in order to serve you. Which in turn presents us a great motive to love others. The way that Christ has loved us is a motive for our love to others. Here's the point early stated. If we say to others, they're not worthy of my love, therefore I'm not going to go out of my way to love them, we necessarily demonstrate in our thoughts, actions, or words that we don't understand the first principle of God's love to us and of Christ's love to us. So the motive of self-denying love. Second, the focus of our love. We can say it in two simple ways. It's upon others, and it's upon the concerns of others. Certainly these things are related. But notice, to divide these out, the first aspect of the focus is upon others. And so you see it in the text, verse 3, let each esteem other 
better than themselves. This is a simple word. We all understand that it refers to an individual who's different from me. Anyone who is not me is other than I am. You see it again in verse 4, though in the plural, others look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This, of course, is referring to everyone else who is other than I am. Now, brethren, this, of course, is in the context of the church fellowship, which means that Paul is particularly speaking of other brethren, members of the church, those who are uh, in the covenant of God, which helps us to state simply that the focus of our love is to be upon everyone else in the church except one. And that's me. I'm not the focus of my love. I don't come into the equation. But brethren, here's the very thing that makes it a struggle for us. It's easy to think about theoretically, but it's difficult when we think about the particular people that we rub shoulders with. It's difficult when we have a history with others. Everyone knows the expression of, well, it's a honeymoon period, not only with reference to marriage, but with a new job, with a new church, with a new people. You know, we go somewhere and we think this way, oh, if I lived here, everything would be happy and easy. But brethren, we should know well enough. We've been there, done that. We get there and it's all happy until time passes. And then what happens? Frictions arise, difficulties appear, just like when one is first married and they say this is the best And then as it is, the honeymoon's over, they get home, and then all of a sudden they realize things aren't as perfect as I thought they were. You see, we start to think about it in this way. Okay, I'm supposed to love other people. That's easy in the abstract. But then I look at the faces, and I see the people that I'm actually called to love. And with that becomes or comes a history. But he did this to me. And she said that of me. And he didn't do this the way that he should have. And she should have gone better about it than she did with reference to my concerns. Those arguments. Well, I should love others. I should give myself to them. I should deny myself. I should make my servant. But he did this to me. She said that to me. The problem in these excuses is the simple word, me. We make me bigger. It looms large. It becomes the focus. But you'll notice the focus of our love has nothing to do with the me. It has everything to do with the you, the others. This focus upon self is what distracts us when I'm thinking about loving others and I come into the picture. What's happened is my focus has become off. Because my focus, as the passage demonstrates, is to be on others. Think of it this way. What if Christ used this as His excuse? Well, I would love them in such a way as to serve them. I would humble myself for them. I would give myself on their behalf. I would serve them with humility and lowliness. And I would do all of these things But after all, He said this about me. 
She did this toward me. He never gave me what I deserve. She never repaid me for what I've done. If that's the way Christ had reasoned, we would have been left in our sins. And if we think otherwise, then we don't understand how wicked our sins are. Here's the point. Christ's focus was not upon Himself. It's not that He, as it were, said, well, none of this is really painful to me. None of this is actually difficult for me. But His focus was not upon His pain. His focus was not upon His self-denial. His focus was not upon His privations and His losses and His sufferings and His shame and His agony. He knew those things, but because His focus was on others, He said, I'll pursue them. I'll give Myself for them. He didn't say, I would die for them, but they were sinful to Me. Rather, He looked upon them and willingly gave Himself for them. Brethren, the focus upon others in the church is a focus upon the others for whom Christ gave Himself. Here are the people that Christ has given you to love. You know, it's right for us to think, how can I love other Christians? And yet, that's like a husband saying, how can I be generous to other women? while the husband neglects his own wife. And so we think, well, I can get really along well with that congregation, with those Christians and this group of others. And then we look at our own congregation and we say, well, this is where the difficulty is. Here's the simple fact you don't know. So soon as you went into the other congregation and lived there long enough, you'd have the same problem there as you have everywhere else. Because the problem isn't the people in the room. The problem is your consuming focus upon yourself. Here's what Christ went through. He sees all of those things that, that we've done against Him. But He says, my focus is on loving and serving them. And that's the mind that's to be in us. The second aspect of the focus is the concerns of others. So we focus on others as the object of our love. And related to that, we take up their concerns as our concerns. Striking, isn't it? So soon as the Lord shows mercy, for instance, to Simon Peter's mother-in-law, what does she do? She gets up and she starts serving. Isn't that striking? She doesn't sit back and say, well, you know, I've just gone through it, and so you come and tend to me. So soon as she's healed, she starts to serve. She starts to concern herself, in other words, with others' needs. This is what love is. So you've heard it before and you'll hear it again, hopefully again and again. The difference between love and lust is not pleasure. The difference is love finds pleasure in giving. Lust takes pleasure in getting. It's consumed with getting. Lust is the black hole of self-pleasure. Whereas love is that which gives and delights in giving and takes joy in giving and finds it the greatest delight to see others receive. Now, brethren, notice verse 4. Look not every man on his own things. But isn't that what keeps us from enjoying one another? Well, why does no one concern themselves with my stuff? Why is no one caring for my difficulties? 
Why doesn't anyone interest themselves in my pains, my sufferings, my circumstances? And this is the seedbed of bitterness. But when it is that we start to say, you know what? What about my brother there? You may have different circumstances, but what about his circumstances, the difficulties? What about my sister there? What about her difficulties? And what's strange is, it's connected. Bitterness is lost when we take our eyes off of what we're not getting and when we start turning our eyes to what we can give. Why is it that Christ is not only a man of sorrows, that is, acquainted with grief, but He's also a man who goes about loving others and counting in His delight? How is it He can bear up with not only the twelve disciples, but He can bear up with us with endless love? It's because He loves. He concerns Himself with others' needs. And this is the question that is to be upon our mind. What needs do they have? Not my needs. And brethren, so soon as you do this, you can guarantee that the question will rise up in your mind. Well, yeah, they have needs, but I have needs too. Yeah, they, I see that, but why does no one care about mine? And brethren, here's the point. That's the kingdom of darkness. That's the kingdom and power of darkness manipulating, feeding, festering, and trying to keep back the light of Christ. No one's denying your needs. Christ is simply saying you're not to concern yourself with them because you've not been made to manage all of these things and to promote yourself. You've been made to serve others. That's where you'll find joy. Here's the great deception of our age. The great deception of our age is this thought. If others would just do more for me, I'd be happy. If others would remember me, I'd be happy. If others would serve me, I'd be content. If others would do these things, I'd finally arrive and all my problems would be taken away. The politics of our age believe that lie and many in the church today believe that lie as well. But the fact is, We will find no joy until we find our joy first in giving to God in accordance to His grace, and secondly, in giving to one another in accordance to His grace. This is where our souls find delight. Everything else will be vanity. So our focus then, others and the concerns of others. Thirdly, the exercise of our love. How is our love to show itself? How are we to exercise this love? So, of course, there is an affection, a feeling in love. And so, we have this sense of um, desire and so on. But the Scriptures are quite clear that true love does. It gives. It works. And so, what is it that we are to do? What is it that we are to show? Paul tells us in verses 2-5, to and we can summarize them in three points. First, we are to pursue unity with one another. So you see the unifying focus of verse 1. Consolation in Christ, comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, bowels and mercies. And so then verse 2 says, Be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. 
And so one thing to note is to pursue unity with one another is to begin by seeing that we actually share in unity with one another. The same things that are most precious to us, the consolation of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit, the comfort of love, and all these other things that we could enumerate, are the very things that fellow Christians enjoy as well. And so you think of it, you back up. For whom did Christ die? Well, the believer could say, He died for me. What a blessing it is. But if we go further, we have to say, He died for us. He's our Savior. He's united us together. And so you see this, of course, in Ephesians in chapter 4, where Paul is laboring this similarly, calling us to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Verse 1, notice, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he lifts, lists off these uh, one items, one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of, of all and so on. What's he saying? You are one. In so many ways, you're one. This is how we begin pursuing it, by acknowledging that we are one by grace in Christ. What we say, but he's so different from me. She's so different than I am. Perhaps that's the case in many ways. But here's the point. In the most fundamental identifying feature that one can have, his standing before God, and the way by which He stands before God. We are one in Christ. And so if that's the case, what do we need to do? Notice, we are to be like-minded, having the same love of one accord, of one mind. So we are to labor to have these unifying features dominate our thoughts toward one another. Brethren, that's harder than we think because one thing the Lord has given us is the ability to differentiate and it's easy for us to differentiate. But that isn't new. Paul lived in the age where there was the grand differentiation between Jews and Gentiles and also barbarians and Scythians and bond and free and other such things. And we live in a day where there are many differentiating features. And yet, if we labor to start here, we actually start to think the same thing. We start to, as Paul exhorts, to have the same love, to be of one accord and of one mind. So we pursue unity with one another by acknowledging the unity that we share in Christ. And as this dominates us, we start to see not those petty things that hinder our affection, but we see the weighty things that as a magnetic impulse draw us one to another. Here is a brother in the Lord. Here is a sister in Christ. Here is, whatever the differences may be, here is one with whom I am one. Second, we are to cultivate lowliness before one another, which you can see in verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. There's one word that challenges this, and it's but. Lowliness, but wait. You mean toward them? But what about 
his weaknesses, but what about her sins, but what about their problems, but what about their shortcomings? Notice that Paul says, do nothing through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. But he's not really better than I am. But she's actually not smarter than I am. But they actually aren't as gifted as I am. Okay, Paul doesn't say, let each one believe that everyone is truly existentially and essentially better. He says, let each reckon, esteem, credit. This isn't a falsifying of the truth. It is a mental activity whereby we say, this one, by me, is going to be considered as greater than I am. Say, that's impossible. It's exactly what Christ did to you. Christ, the Lord and King of glory. Not in an essential way, you understand. It's not that He, the Creator, said, well, they essentially are better than I am. The acknowledgement of what's before us is His treatment of us was treating us as better than He treated Himself. He gave and gave and gave for our improvement Never as it were saying, what do I get out of this? He was giving to us, having treated us better, having esteemed us as better than, our, than Himself. And this is what's meant. We don't look in this sort of currency of exchange of I'll give this if they give that, and we can call it even. We say, no, in my treatment of one another, I am sincerely going to treat them as they are better than I am. How do we do that? By obliterating pride. By seeing the cross plunge through the idol of our heart, which preeminently is in our own image. In lowliness of mind, we humble ourselves. Brethren, that's actually not too hard to do. Because if you take an actual inventory of what you are in comparison to the law of God and to the image of God, you'll start to say, what am I? I'm nothing. I'm less than nothing. You know, Paul will elsewhere say that he is the least of the saints. And you say, time out, Paul. Let's think about this. You've gone on missionary journey after missionary journey. You've suffered all these things you've written of elsewhere. How can you say you're the least of the saints? Well, because he's speaking with reference to his knowledge of himself. You see, he's cultivated lowliness of mind. The fact that we struggle with that is a testimony to this that we haven't cultivated lowliness of mind. When we come face to face with a concrete in the flesh believer and we struggle with serving them, with taking a position lower than they have, it's because we haven't actually done the heart work of cultivating lowliness of mind. The cultivating of lowliness of mind is what enables us to esteem other better than ourselves. Well, along with this third, we are to prioritize the good of others over the good of ourselves. Look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That is, we are to take such an interest in their well-being and their welfare that we say, that is my concern. That we take little concern and little interest in our own welfare, not carelessly, 
But notice for a moment what follows all of this in verse 25. Paul gives another example. He gives Timothy earlier, verse 19. But notice verse 25 of Epaphroditus, whom he calls a brother and companion and labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. You already see it there. He's ministering to Paul's wants. And notice he sa- it says, He, that is Epaphroditus, longed after you all and was full of heaviness because ye had heard that he had been sick. He was burdened because others were burdened for him. And Paul says it wasn't that he wasn't sick. He indeed was sick unto death, nigh unto death. But his concern was so wrapped up in the well-being of others that his knowledge of their concern about him made him longing and full of heaviness for them. What's it saying? Epaphroditus' identity was not bound up in Epaphroditus. It was bound up in the well-being of the church of Jesus Christ. Not the abstract notion of the church, but the concrete flesh and blood of the Philippians. He lived for them. He breathed for them. That was his concern. In other words, it's not just that Christ as the God-man did this. It's that Christ in His people brings this to be. As in Epaphroditus, as in Timothy, as in Paul and others. And if Christ is able to do it in them, He's able to do it in us as well. How? Verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If we are to do this, it will not be by take these ten steps and do them. It will not be by, oh, okay, so in other words, I need to reorient my schedule and do these five things first and then get to those things and all of the you know, self-help counsel and so on, some of which has insight and helpful tactics But those tactics will never actually cause you to enjoy the essential thing, which is death to self. There's no tactic for dying to yourself. There's no self-help manual that will give you, here's how you die to yourself. That which brings about this radical change is the regenerating work of the Spirit by which we die to ourselves and by God's grace are made alive in Christ. It is union with Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We said last week that the love of Christ multiplies. And it multiplies by Christ dwelling in us. If we're to love one another in this way, so that we esteem others as better than ourselves, as greater than ourselves, and serve others, and don't think about our own things, but consume ourselves with thinking about the things of others, the only way that that comes to pass is as Christ who did these things with perfection, lives in us, dwells in us, inhabits us. As we close, we see here something that we need to consider well. We're not to focus on ourselves, as it were, as the object of our concern, but we do need to consider ourselves. Here's what I mean. Sometimes we hear sermons, read the Bible, and we think instantly, this is what they need to think about. This is what 
he really needs to focus on. You know, if she really got her act together and listened to this kind of thing and she started loving others instead of consuming herself with herself, then she would really be helped. This would really help him. But brethren, the point is, you and I are the ones who need the message. And so we need to make sure that we're considering ourselves in this. Not as the end and the object of all things, but as the one who requires, or rather, who needs the grace of God to work within them. To do that, start with the love of Christ that He's shown toward you. Remembering what Christ has done for you. Meditating upon the many displays of His love. Considering that He, as we saw last week, humbled Himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And He suffered the agonizing torment of the curse that was thereon. Remember the spitting. Remember the strikes upon His face. Remember the mockery of the, uh, of the uh, fellow uh, ones being crucified and uh, the chief priests and scribes and His disciples fleeing from Him. Remember the darkness of the curse that was upon Him and the cry of dereliction that He experienced. All of the ridicule that He faced and He faced for you. That on the cross, hell consumed Him. Unrelenting judgment bringing Him to say, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? And the simple fact that we can give is, I've forsaken You because of them. Their sins are now on You. What would Christ have done if He had reasoned like we often reason? Well, if this is what I'm getting out of it, you know, get me out of here. But brethren, He lovingly, sincerely, willingly denied Himself. Reckoning. How can we think of this? He reckoned you as better than Himself. You want proof of it? Look at the cross. That's what He takes upon Himself. And it's not just the outward, physical reality of the cross. For many of His brethren would suffer the same fate. It's that on the cross, He bears God's wrath and curse. No other person does that. No other Christian experiences that. We can say it this way, no Christian can experience God's wrath and curse anymore because Christ took it upon Himself. He esteemed you better than Himself in taking upon Himself the wrath of God. And you say, for me? But I'm unworthy of that. I don't deserve that. He's worthier than I am. He deserves all glory, all praise, all honor, all obedience. I've done wrong. And you're right. You aren't worthy of His love. You aren't worthy of His work. You aren't worthy of His esteeming of you as better than Himself. You aren't worthy of His humiliation. You aren't worthy of His self-denial. You aren't worthy of His suffering. You're worthy of His anger. You're worthy of His spiteful rage. You're worthy of His vengeance. But He did not consider Himself, but considered you and your well-being. He looked not upon His own things, but upon your things. Brethren, 
He set His love upon you. And when once you understand this, you'll then be ready to start loving your brethren as Paul presents to us. We close by saying, brethren, if we're going to start anywhere, start with the love of God to us in Christ. But oh, remember it in the context. And so start by praying, Lord, that mind which was in Christ Jesus and still is, let it be given to me. That all of the petty faults, all of the real faults, all of the real sins against me would be overcome by the love of Christ to me and in me that I then would so walk as Christ walked toward me. And the practice of my love would be measured by the perfection and enabled by the perfection of His love. Would you stand with me?